Great to be with you for another episode of LifeWords Q&A. I love this time of the week where we get to uh, just sort of poke David Ray with questions revolving around life and faith and uh, what the Bible says and doesn't say about certain things. It's always great to uh, read and just put your questions to David. David, welcome again to the Lion's Den. Thanks, Andrew. (laughs) Okay, so three questions ahead of us. Uh, Let's get stuck into it. The first question from one of our listeners is, how important is it for Christians to believe in the virgin birth? Well, opinions vary on this, actually. Uh, Some people might be surprised to hear me say that, but uh, yes, within the Christian church, opinions do vary. Some say it's a vital article of belief because it secures the divine identity of Jesus. Um, The thinking there is if he was born through a normal human being, uh, human processes, he must therefore be a normal human being. And besides, the Bible says he was born of a virgin, so that decides it. But others do differ. Um, First, the word for virgin, uh, as many people realise, can mean any young woman. And that prophecy in Isaiah, a very famous Old Testament prophecy that a virgin would bear a child, was historically fulfilled by a young woman who wasn't a virgin. Uh, so the, the word can be a bit ambiguous. Um, second, Jesus' divine status, some would argue, is not ultimately dependent on the virgin birth. He could have been born through normal human being, uh, human processes, um, and, and yet retain his divinity. His um, difference, his divinity, arises out of his actions in life rather than the means of his birth. Um, then again, their historic creeds generally affirm the virgin birth. The Bible doesn't make a big deal of it, and some people think, well, because the Bible doesn't make a big deal of it, therefore it, it, it can't be that important. But I don't think that's a great argument. I mean, the Bible doesn't make a whole big deal of a whole lot of things, but they may be, it may be important. In terms of a big deal, though, I mean, there is an angel proclaiming and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yes. So, I mean, there's a bit of a deal. Oh, there is a bit of a deal. That's right. And, and this is where I think that's a bit of a, a silly argument in a way, because, I mean, to say that, oh, well, the Bible doesn't um, mention it a lot, well, it mentions... It does mention it really clearly, and as I say, there is a, a bit of ambiguity on the word virgin, but yep. uh, but it does mention it, so I, I'm not terribly convinced by that sort of argument, I must say. Um, to reject, So some people reject it simply on the grounds it's impossible. Uh, they say, well, a virgin birth is impossible, so therefore it can't have happened. Now, I, I'd be very wary of that sort of ground. Um, yes, you can argue linguistically, does virgin mean literally a virgin or a young woman and so on? Yes, they're, they're, they're legitimate arguments, but I really would reject the argument that says, oh, well, a virgin birth can't possibly have happened because, woo, 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 hang on, who's to say what God can and can't do? If you deny one miracle, uh, we may then try to explain all the others away too. So there's a bit of a danger in that, I think, of just simply saying, um, you know, the virgin birth can't have happened because virgin births don't happen. Yep. Because logically you have to say, well, the resurrection couldn't have happened because dead men don't rise sort of thing. Um, if we end up disbelieving the virgin birth, um, as some Christians do, I have to admit that, um, you need to be sure of your grounds and not just out of scepticism about miracles. Uh, I think there's all sorts of things we can take issue with the Bible on and say, well, maybe that shouldn't be taken literally but metaphorically, but not out of a sense of, oh, this couldn't have happened because it's impossible. Uh, when, when you bring God into the picture, you've got to be careful about those categories of possibilities and impossibilities. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, for whatever reason, um, I don't think it puts you outside of the faith, 
Uh, I certainly wouldn't say you're not a Christian because you don't believe in the virgin birth. But beware of your presuppositions, beware of your beliefs about miracles and what is possible and not possible. If you read the scriptures carefully and on linguistic grounds or maybe on deeper theological grounds, think, no, I don't think the virgin birth is a necessary article of belief. Okay, but don't you read, don't look at the virgin birth and say, oh, well, it can't have happened, um, therefore I disbelieve it. I think that is to deny the essential supernatural core of the Christian faith. Uh, so um, I think we've got to be very careful if you reject the, um, the, the literalness of the virgin birth. I think you need to have good grounds. Do you think as we are becoming more wise... Um, as a culture and as a society that we uh, start to question more and more of the Bible, perhaps compared to uh, in previous decades? Yes, I, I, I think we... we, we uh we, well, we've got more what I might loosely call scientific uh, material around us to um, question the Bible. Some people, you know, way, way back, centuries back, would not question it because they didn't have the means by which they could question it. Now, that doesn't mean we're always wrong to question the Bible. I mean, you, on the, you know, we have a lot of scientific things and we can apply some of those scientific things to our reading of the Bible and that can be a good thing or it can lead to arrogant scepticism then again the um people who were reading the scriptures or were taught the scriptures back say in the middle ages um were prey to all sorts of superstitions um because they didn't have quite the scientific advances we had so there's advantages and disadvantages of living in the pre-scientific world and in in our era the scientific world i think we do we we it is perfectly right for us to question Scripture in terms of does the Scripture mean this or does it mean that? Uh, having a complete literalist view of the Scripture is, to my way, nonsensical because the Scripture itself allows for different metaphors and literary types and poetry and symbolism and so on and so on. Um, but we've got to be very careful about rejecting the literal truth of the Bible on the basis that we know better and these things can't have happened. Um, once, we, once we adopt that view, I think we're in danger of ourselves sitting in, in, in a, uh, a false judgment on Scripture, and I think that we've got to be very careful about that. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray, Andrew Morris. We are discussing your questions over a 15-minute or so podcast each week. Uh, three questions. We're moving to our second question, David. Who was to blame for Jesus' crucifixion? You're getting some good ones today. The Jews or the Romans? Well, actually, two groups of people have to take responsibility. Uh, I, I think generalising it to say the Jews or the Romans is probably a little bit too general. Um, the Roman authorities had to take responsibility and the Jewish religious leaders had to take responsibility. Note that as a whole, the Jews cannot be held responsible. Sadly, one of the grounds for anti-Semitism down through the ages has been that uh, the Jews in some cultures were seen as Christ killers, mm. and the Jews were therefore marginalised in society because they killed Christ. Well, they didn't do any such thing, thank you very much. Um, um, certain Jewish religious leaders um, took the lead, there were many other Jews, of course, and, uh, including Jesus' disciples who embraced him and followed him. 
Um, now, if the Jewish religious leaders hadn't complained to Pilate, Jesus need not have died. Pilate would have. Pilate wasn't interested in crucifying Jesus. Um, he was. He was not really doing anything terribly much, as far as Pilate was concerned. Anyway, he was just another religious leader, and he probably saw a few of these around the place and thought, let let them get on with what they get on with. The Romans actually did have a fairly authoritarian form of government, but at the same time, they did allow a, a reasonable amount of religious freedom as long as it didn't interfere with Caesar, as it were. So, looking at the main characters here, David. Who was Pontius Pilate? What was his role? Pontius Pilate was the local regional governor of that area. Um, I mean, Caesar was obviously in control, but he was the governor of that outpost, that that Roman outpost. So he had a fair amount of authority, but even then he had to answer to Caesar. And generally speaking in that era, um, the Roman authorities, as I say, were quite happy enough for there to be a bit of religious freedom. Um, Herod uh, was allowed to a fair amount of power. The Jews were allowed a reasonable amount of freedom in terms of uh, exercising their own faith. So it's not as if the, 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 they, were, they were squashing the local religion and Pilate was certainly not, um, as I say, interested necessarily in crucifying Jesus. But the Jewish religious leaders... They had the problem because, of course, Jesus was challenging their authority. This, this was a power game. This wasn't much to do with theology. This was, this was these people have been waiting for the Messiah for so long, and blow me down when the Messiah comes. Uh, he challenges their preoccup- yeah. presuppositions, and they, they want to do away with him. So the Pharisees, who were they? The Pharisees were a certain um, uh, group within uh, the Jewish um, religious uh, framework of the time. And, and, and the Pharisees had a bad name in, in the Gospels. They were regarded as the legalists and the, you know, the pedantic sort of people who heap burdens on people. In fact, the, the, their background was in the time of the Greek occupation of that area uh, before the Romans when the Pharisees were the heroes of faith. Many Jews were actually were giving up on their faith and compromising and so on. It was the Pharisees who stood firm and said we've got to stick to the law we've got to value the temple and they, they were the great heroes of faith but tip, typically all their good zealotry all their good zeal became a bit curdled by the time of jesus and blinded them from seeing this person it, it, it's exactly right they they they, they become that they had to cling to their religious traditions in times of persecution and by but then those very religious traditions helped prevent them seeing the reality of Jesus being mm. the Messiah. So you've got these Jewish leaders, a lot of Pharisees, no, no, not all the Pharisees, um, but a lot of these Jewish leaders saw Jesus as a threat. Instead of seeing him as a Messiah, they saw him as a, one of these false messiahs. And so they wanted to do away with him. But of course, the Jews couldn't do away with anyone. They, they didn't have the capacity to exercise um, uh, such, uh, such, such discipline. They could exercise some discipline, but they couldn't put him to death. A capital punishment had to be uh, authorised by the Romans. So they bring him to Pilate. Now, so at this stage, it's the Jewish religious leaders who are responsible. But then when we get to them confronting Pilate, um, we find that Pilate says, well, I can find no fault in this man. You go sort it all out yourself. But then they play their trump card, as it were. They said to Pilate, ah, if you let this guy go, uh, we can stir up a little bit of trouble with Caesar. And you hold power. 
at Caesar's command. And if you are seen to be a weak leader who uh, who who doesn't allow us to put this man to death and who will therefore stir up some more civil unrest. This Jesus is going to stir up yep. civil unrest. So Pilate, your position's under threat. So here's where we see Pilate having to accept responsibility. You see, Jesus need not have died if the Jewish religious leaders had not have brought him before Pilate. But then again, Jesus need not have died had not Pilate given in to the Jewish authorities. Um, Pilate, incidentally, had a reputation in, in the literary sources of the day as both a very weak man and a very cruel man. If he had been a stronger man of more integrity, he could have said to the Jewish leaders, what a load of rubbish. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to intervene at all here. The, fun, um, the funny thing is it had to happen, though. Yes, yes, this is exactly right. So God, <laughs> God in, in a way, God... For, for salvation to take place and for connection, Jesus had to die. Is that correct, Andy? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So who's, who's, who's to blame? Well, the Jewish religious leaders were to blame. Uh, they had a very critical role to play. But then Pilate had a critical role to play. But um, over, overarching all that, we can say that it was in the overall purpose of God that he died. Um, now, the Roman and Jewish authorities yeah. are still culpable. Uh, they're, they're, they're still accountable. Uh, there's no way they can squirm out of that. But what we've got, the picture here, is God, as it were, a few steps back, is overseeing this. And while Pilate is responsible, the Jewish leaders are responsible, God is seeing that these wicked, evil, unjust human actions in fact, can still be used and taken up in his good purposes. So, yes, the Roman authorities are culpable, the Jewish authorities are culpable, but ultimately God says, yes, you're all culpable, but you haven't beaten me. You know, I'm having the last word, which, of course, came at his resurrection. Fascinating. I need a rest. <laughs> this is LifeWords Q&A with David Ray, Andrew Morris. You can subscribe to David's daily devotional at hope1032.com.au. You'll receive it Monday to Fridays in your uh, email inbox at around 5.30am, so you start the day in a great way. Otherwise, you can also subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes store. Just search for LifeWords Q&A or Hope Media Limited, and uh, you'll find the link to uh, get it into your uh, iTunes or your iPod each week. David, our final question is, um, is it wrong for a Christian or a church to go into debt? Well, uh, certainly hope not. Um, speaking personally, uh, as someone who's got a bit of a debt, uh, and every church I've passed that has had a bit of a debt. I don't know whether that says anything about me or the church. I'm not sure. But look, it, it, it very much depends on the size and purpose of the debt. I, I don't think being in debt is, is essentially necessarily wrong. Uh, I, I can't see that there's any, any evidence for that. Um, for many of us, of course, it's unavoidable. If you're to own your own house, um, then um, most people have to go into debt. Uh, and, and a business or a church may go into debt in order to pursue worthwhile goals. You see, I can think of many churches and Christian organisations that are exercising wonderful ministry because of the facilities and the resources they've got, which are financed by debt. So if they didn't have debt, they wouldn't be performing those ministries. So I, 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 I don't think there's any, any, any problem with debt um, in itself. And many Christians, individual Christians, are enjoying the benefits of owning a reasonable sort of house or uh, helping their kids through school or whatever it is, doing a worthwhile thing um, because of debt. And again, I, I think therefore debt can be uh, can be used for good purposes. 
There are two dangers, though, in debt. One is the sheer amount of it, <laughs> because, you know, what, uh, we have to say, can it be repaid? Um, are we out of our depth? Um, is the debt out of all proportion to the benefit we may receive from it? So, so yes, you may be, you may be, it, it may be legitimate to have a debt of a certain amount in order to own a house or in order to put your kids through school or in order to um, uh, exercise a Christian ministry. But while debt in itself is not the problem, we have to ask ourselves, how much debt? Because too much debt, as, as we know from the corporate world as well as the Christian world, can be fatal. Uh, too much debt, you, 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 can be, you can be paying off so much interest that you never pay off the capital, for example. And that can actually cripple you in the long run. I do know of a few churches which have taken on too much debt, and that saddled future generations of that church with paying off that debt with significant problems. So, so there, there, we have to ask yourself, how much debt is good debt? And there's no easy answer to that. And another danger, I think, of getting into debt is getting into debt out of greed or a desire to look good. Some individuals might do that. I need a new car, I need a new house because others have got the same thing. Or churches can feel, well, the church down the road and around the corner has got all these fancy facilities, so let's go into debt so that we can sort of um, uh, look as good as they do. Um, we use money uh, we don't have in order to impress others or make ourselves look good or because others seem to be doing the same thing. And I think that's a very careless and wrong use of money. I think going into debt for a good reason um, and with, with, uh, with, a, with, an, with a certain degree of prudence is perfectly okay. Too much debt, bad. Um, going into debt for those wrong reasons, very, very foolish. Thanks, David. You've been listening to LifeWords Q&A, and uh, thank you so much for your pleasure. You can subscribe to David's daily devotional email by signing up at hope1032.com.au or uh, download previous episodes of LifeWords Q&A at hope1032.com.au. Again, David, thanks so much. Thank you.